0: The Young and Healthy Podcast.
1: You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast.
0: Welcome to season two of the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. My name is Bo McMillan, and I have the pleasure of being your host for this episode today. Today we're going to be talking to Dr. Mark Rothenberg, Director of Allergy and Immunology at Cincinnati Children's. And we're going to be talking about how new medications are created from conception to research to trials to ultimate approval for use in people. Dr. Rothenberg, how are you today?
1: I'm doing quite well. Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you and your viewers.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's start with the very basics of a new medication you know we, we know that research we know this process can be a, a fairly long endeavor right and, and it can be pretty complex how do you get the idea for a new medication do you do you see a problem that needs fixing do you see an opportunity another medication where does the idea start and, and how has that played out in your own research
1: the idea for a drug is a long process and it starts off with a problem, taking a look at a problem. Here at Cincinnati Children's, we're often walking through the hospital, seeing patients that come to us, and, uh, and we're here to solve problems, to make the world a better place, especially for children. My own research started off with seeing a problem, a problem where we found that there were too many people presenting to our hospital with severe allergies that nobody really understood anything about. So we're lucky at Cincinnati Children's that we have a research uh, operation with the Cincinnati Children's Research Foundation, and that gives us an opportunity to go in and to ask questions that have to do with um, stepping back and trying to understand the cause of the disease, describe it, understand the mechanisms, and then from that, we can then understand potentially how to treat it better, ultimately leading to new therapies and sometimes cases, in this particular case, a new drug.
0: So I, I know that you do research into diseases that are quite rare. And so when we have people, you know, patients coming into our hospital, oftentimes th- there may not be a solution for them. And and so what you're saying is you are looking at this problem that maybe no one else has ever solved before. And you're thinking, how can I help this individual?
1: That's right. Here at Cincinnati Children's, there's no problem too small. There's no problem too large. We are working on common diseases like cancer, allergies, asthma, but also rare diseases. Now, rare diseases are um, not as rare as one thinks. First of all, diseases like sickle cell anemia are considered to be rare diseases, but, you know, it's actually, we have hundreds, not thousands of these patients coming to the hospital every year. Diseases of the immune system, when you collectively put them together, there's, you know, very common collective prevalence of these diseases. There are over 7,000 different rare diseases, and, and more than 1 in 10 people directly have one of those rare diseases. Wow. So many families are affected by these diseases. And really, if you take a look at Cincinnati Children's, with all of our expertise and our over 15,000 employees and, and hundreds and hundreds of doctors and healthcare providers and thousands of researchers, there's no disease really that's uh, beyond our, our capacity to understand and to treat. And we are a series of experts on any disease, including rare diseases.
0: I, th- I think that that is probably incredibly encouraging to our families out there, that there's nothing that you're going to be shocked by and be unable to work with and ultimately help. That's right. I, I know that you recently had a drug receive FDA approval and we're gonna get into that process here in a little bit, but um, I guess why don't you kick off just kind of telling us a little more about this. What problem did you see and, and what what was your thought process as you went about trying to solve it?
1: The problem that we saw was that patients were presenting to a hospital with various forms of uh, food intolerances, which really fall into the category of food allergies. However, unlike The classic food allergies, such as peanut anaphylaxis, which is an immediate reaction to things like peanut, butter, and and other nuts and, and legumes, these patients had chronic GI symptoms, but they didn't have immediate reactions to the food. And when we looked at the samples from these patients that we were able to obtain through a procedure called endoscopy, which is uh, something that a GI, a gastroenterology specialist does with, by putting a little tube down into the body and extracting small little small pieces of tissue. Looking at it under the microscope, we saw that the changes looked like allergic inflammation with swelling mm-hmm. of the tissue with, with a certain type of, of blood, cell so called an eosinophil. And this disease started to accumulate. We started seeing more and more patients over the last two decades So that now we have over 2,000 of these patients coming to our hospital. We were the first centers that were set up to study these patients, but now we've become exemplary leaders and examples for for dozens of these centers that have been set up throughout the United States. And we are indeed collaborating, if not leading, the the approach to these diseases through a uh, consortium, which is a group of investigators at 16 different hospitals in the US that are studying these problems. This particular disease did get a name called eosinophilic esophagitis, cool. meaning eosinophils accumulating in the esophagus, which is the tube that connects the mouth to the stomach, mm-hmm. and itis meaning swelling. So it's eosinophilic esophagitis, which we then began to understand, research, and uh, and then develop new therapies around it.
0: So, so one of the issues you saw with this, going back to the idea of being a food allergy, is you know you were talking about a peanut allergy earlier that. If someone who has that type of allergy were to eat a peanut, it it shows up fairly quickly. That's right. But what you're talking about in this issue is maybe the complications wouldn't show up until later, right. and I'm sure that was very confusing to try to figure out. What's going on with this patient?
1: Yes, it was because there wasn't a direct link with the foods, but it took a long time to understand that the foods were driving the disease, even though the patients were surprisingly ingesting and eating all of these foods without realizing that this was the culprit
0: mm-hmm. so so you you see this issue, you start to you start to make these connections with specific types of food and you say, okay, now that we understand this a little better, we can come up with a drug to help this. What does right. that initial process look like of You know, how do you select the, I don't know, ingredients for that drug?
1: Well, Vo, the the process at Cincinnati Children's often to approach this, especially when you look at a disease at the beginning of its uh, description or the infancy of, of a problem, It's just like raising a a baby in a family. You need to start off with the elements and teach the baby how to eat and then teach the baby how to walk and and then talk and and, and finally go to school. So you have to start off with the fundamentals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we needed to do that by asking basic questions. You know, what was the... um, the basic problem, what was the process, and and a lot of the ways that we do that at Cincinnati Children's is through what we call fundamental basic science research, which means that we're not necessarily looking at the drug at the beginning, hmm. but we're actually um, going into the laboratory and dissecting out each of the steps that are involved in the process, and sometimes we actually do that in animal systems that we have.
0: Mm-hmm. So once you start to kind of, I guess, formulate this drug, you're, you're doing the research to figure out, is this actually going to help our patients? You know, you said we, we can work with animals. Ultimately, we need human trials though with, with any new drug. And we, I feel like the, the world at large has been exposed to this a little more recently with you know the COVID-19 vaccine, right? I, I think just the term clinical trial is a little more in our vernacular than it would be. What do clinical trials look like as you approach them? What are you considering when you select participants? How do you select participants? And you know, what are some challenges that, that you face when you put this together?
1: Well, there's a lot of challenges um, that we encounter, especially in the cases of rare diseases, and especially diseases that uh, are early in their infancy, and there's not a lot known about them, and there's not really any, A lot of therapy. So the first thing that we generally do is work out the causes of the disease which we call the molecular mechanisms. What are the molecules, the cells, what are the processes that are taking place? We often do that in the test tube then we'll do that in in, in vivo systems, live systems which is often preclinical animal modeling and we will then do what we call proof of concept studies which is basically prove some of these theories that we have in clinical settings that are outside of the human system. Mm And, um, and through that process, we'll ultimately develop what we consider to be a strong rationale to go into patients. Hmm. And the first time we go into patients, we typically are going to do that in adults. That's what we saw, obviously, with the COVID vaccine that was first approved in adults and only recently in young children. It's the same thing with other forms of research. You need to pr- conduct a study. in Early on, especially with new drugs, we're first considering the safety of the medication, hmm. the safety of the treatment.
0: Before we even uh, test this on humans. Yes. We're well, even the
1: on the test, first preclinical safety, but then early studies in patients have to do primarily with making sure that you're, you're not going to do any damage. not hmm. and It's a safe therapy. We'll test that in adults that consent to the study. This is all done under regulatory Guidance by institutional committees, we call them institutional review boards, also in conjunction with approval by the uh, Food and Drug Administration, which is the FDA, and um, we uh, also do in collaboration, usually with drug companies that are that are interested in these subjects, that have uh, drugs that sometimes are used for other indications or developed for other common diseases most likely and then we develop the rationale for applying it in this case to the disease eosinophilic esophagitis.
0: I I, I want to stop you real fast because I'm very interested in that there are times when there is a drug maybe already on the market that may it it may be developed for a certain condition a certain disease but it also has other benefits for another disease you're studying and so you can take that and say well this wasn't designed for this but we could use it for this, is that right? Yes
1: it's certainly the case it's um, you could consider that repurposing a drug Mm -hmm. that's already approved or one that's not approved where you're looking for a new indication for its usage for approval. This is particularly important in our case because the drug companies that often uh, develop these drugs aren't necessarily interested in rare diseases especially diseases that aren't well characterized like this disease was at its infancy. So I think one of the, f- the major steps and breakthroughs in this area was something that we did at Cincinnati Children's, which was conduct an early phase trial with a drug that was sitting on the shelf at a drug company. Mm-hmm. And it was us that uh, convinced them to allow us to get access to that medication because our research had indicated that it had strong potential to be a um, Uh, a a good a strong real blockbuster for improving the lives of patients with with these types of diseases Hmm. and and, uh, it takes a lot of dialogue with the company takes a lot of uh, logistical arrangements especially when we have limited budgets even though cincinnati children's um has a lot of research uh, enterprise new research especially on diseases uh that are that aren't well characterized and ones that are um that are rare, hard to find. Patients uh, often takes uh, seed funding that could be some very substantial, especially when you get into clinical trials. So there was a lot of negotiations, fundraising involved, and ultimately discussions with the involved uh, review boards, including the institutional review board, as well as the FDA, to allow us to use a medication initially in adults to prove the theories that we had. And indeed, we conducted this early stage trial which was giving some of the patients the medication and others giving them a placebo, which is um, a and mock they don't know therapy. which is that's which, right. right. They don't know which mm-hmm. is which, which is like almost like we all call, used to call it the sugar pill. In this case, it's an injection, um, but they don't know which is the drug versus the, the uh, placebo. And on then looking at what we consider to be, the readouts that would be relevant to determine if the drug was having an impact. And it's interesting to me as a scientist that those readouts may not necessarily be something that the patients would would uh, recognize early on. Hmm. A patient might feel better if they ultimately was using the drug in the right formulation. But for us, the readouts had to do with looking under the microscope, looking at the molecules, the genes, and, and the pathways that were involved in seeing if they were improved or reversed by the drug. And lo and behold, in the early studies, we developed evidence for that, and that provided really strong rationale to then enter large-scale trials that were very uh, much um, done in partnership with drug companies that, that then became very enthusiastic and motivated to prove our theories, but but to develop their drugs for this particular indication. So when you
0: talk about the initial trial compared to a large-scale trial, how many participants are we talking about this? And I guess just in general, how do you recruit for a trial like this where the disease is a little more rare?
1: The numbers of patients that participate in these trials are are considered relatively small because it is a rare disease. you're looking at a, at hundreds of patients, um, so it's not an insignificant number, but it's also not like uh, conducting a large-scale study for a disease like asthma, which might involve thousands of patients. Mm-hmm. In terms of recruiting these patients, that's a good question. How do we find these patients? Well first, um, patients, are looking for new therapies, especially when they have diseases in which there's no approved uh, treatment and people are suffering, especially young people. And second, we work um, in collaboration with patients and patient groups, and we're fortunate to have great patient advocacy groups that have formed along the way, many of them with our uh, help and guidance and partnership, such as the campaign urging research for eosinophilic diseases, as well as called CURED which is a strong supporter of my research uh, enterprise, as well as the American Partnership for Friends with Eosinophilic Disorders, another patient advocacy group called, uh, with the acronym ABFID, and another one called Eosinophilic Family Coalition, or EFC, and I mention these groups because they are very helpful not only in bringing awareness to these diseases, but also helping guide our research and telling us what the patients think are important, Hmm. but then directly coming back to the point that you made is helping us with recruitment of patients because they have constituencies of patients that that then they can advertise to through social media, for example, and attract patients into our studies.
0: And I I know that obviously research is so critical to the work that we do here at Cincinnati Children's and on our website, we have plenty of opportunities for people to sign up for those trials. And and it really is important that we get individuals for a variety of trials because this is how we advance medicine, right?
1: That's right. And a lot of people are very interested in about how a children's hospital will be treating adults. And Mm. indeed we do a lot of our research, um, is done initially on adults and and people not just in the cincinnati area but a large number of these patients uh, will come in from outside the region and they'll fly in they could come from another country we've had patients coming in from from around the world to participate in, in clinical trials but also to get clinical care on these types of diseases
0: so i i already spoiled this a little bit with saying that your research did receive fda approval but but tell me a little more as you, as you end the trial, you obviously come out with a good result. You come out with a, a medication that's uh, safe and effective. Talk a little bit about that. And, and what were you feeling in that moment? Because this was actually decades of, of research that went into that. What what does that feel like?
1: The experience is not just, um, happen overnight, but it's really one that's gradual. You know, along the way, um, we've published, um, really over 100 papers in top scientific uh, magazines or journals. Each one is an incremental advance to the theories. Some of them are unsuccessful, and some of them are successful. But by and large, all of them lead up the pathway, up a hill, which is um, ultimately a lot of obstacles, ups and downs, and and roads that turn in, in directions that aren't always a straight path. So there's a number of steps that happen, and there's there's often a lot of uh, feedback and and modifications along the way. So we ultimately get to a state where there's a drug approved. It's a great victory, a great victory for the science, for the patients, for Cincinnati Children's, and for the field, and of course, for the drug company. But it's one, I think, that, that humbles me rather than, you know, excites me, because I know that this is just one therapy of many that we need. And when we take a look at a disease like asthma, we have dozens of treatments available. And uh, we take a look at a disease, of a rare disease, where there may be less patients suffering from, but we know that these patients and their families are, are greatly debilitated by these types of diseases. And they deserve more than even this one therapy that we, that we think is a blockbuster therapy, but it's not a cure, and it doesn't work at everyone and we need to understand it better. So it is a major advance. It's a victory for the disease and and it's very exhilarating. But at the same time, we know how much more needs to be done and it motivates my team and I to get to the next level. By developing a drug and working closely with the regulatory authorities, we have now overcome a hurdle. We now know the pathway to getting approval which is uh, something that's different for every disease because there are different criteria that are used for approval. But this really motivates my team and I to continue to strive to do better, to develop new drugs and ultimately a cure for the disease.
0: I I think that that's a really insightful answer to talk about the, the humility that can come along with that because you're not just thinking, oh, we did it. You're thinking there's still work to do. And I'm sure that's the case that's always going to be the case probably in medicine there are always advancements that we can make
1: that's right
0: so you you in this uh you in these trials you have results that show this medication can really help people you have this evidence the next step is uh submitting to the fda correct and that is kind of it's this regulatory commission that says, yes, this is safe for people to use. This is actually going to work. And it's, is that kind of the final hurdle before it goes out to people?
1: Pretty much, Bo. that's, um, the hurdle and to make it available. Other hurdles include now, um, paying for the, for the drug, which Mm. is a, a factor. Um, not all insurance companies will immediately jump to pay for these often very expensive therapies. And of course there's um, often deductibles that, that are, can be you know very limiting for families. So there's um, a number of uh, steps that are still taking place to make the drug available. Also uh, there are criteria which you need to have to be specifically eligible according to um, the guidelines for the medication and that doesn't always apply to all patients. So we work uh, on a personalized level with each patient to, under- to understand their personal and medical situation to um, develop the best pathway for them to be treated with this or some other medications. Often other medications through off-label usage. So when you
0: submit to the FDA, I'm sure it's not necessarily a quick turnaround process because they're evaluating I'm assuming the entirety of your research that you've done again, in your case at least a couple of decades, how long does that process typically take from submittal to hearing something back?
1: Well, the submission for this particular drug and most drugs are not done typically by the academic institution like ours but by the drug company hmm. and um, and and the company depending upon the um, the disease and the negotiation with the FDA, they have a certain uh, time to respond. It's typically going to be um, less than 12 months. And In the case of an expedited review for rare diseases, it can be more short. Uh, There are uh, agreements that one can have, in this case, for the rare disease where where there's uh, some leniency in terms of the criteria, but also in terms of the, the rapidity in which the response needs to take place.
0: So you receive FDA approval. Again, I'll ask you, what did that feel like?
1: That felt nice. Um, it felt like a reward. It felt like a relief. It felt like a victory. Um, it was wonderful to see the Smalls and the patients and their families to understand the impact that this was going to have and the hope that they had and the improvement of, of the lives for so many people around the world uh, who would benefit from the approval it was a um, a nice feeling to know all the people that were behind the approval it certainly we played an important role here at Cincinnati children's, but there was really probably hundreds and hundreds if not thousands of patients if you think about all the patients that were involved in the studies but all the families all the researchers, the company, the committees that were involved in and understanding that this doesn't happen by working alone, but by having um, a lot of different multidisciplinary, multifaceted approaches to, to reach this moment. You know, For example, we were very um, excited in part when the approval came out because it took place on a special day of the calendar, which was on a Friday, around 2 p.m. in the afternoon, which is significant, obviously, the end of the work week when we got a sudden announcement by the FDA that this was approved, but what was notable was that that week that they approved it was the National Eosinophil Awareness Week in the United States, oh, wow. which is something that was um, um, put forth by one of the patient advocacy groups that had worked hard with with um, Congress to pass a an acknowledgement of this disease and to get it written into legislation, so that. Once a year, there is a federal recognition of the disease, and there are certainly events taking place along throughout the United States in, in various ways. Like at our hospital, we uh, had a booth in the lobby. We had a lot of social media released that week, and we also had um, lights on that were reflective of uh, the color of the eosinophil mm-hmm. that were flashing in, in certain regions of the hospital, particularly in the evening. So there was recognition of this, but it was I think not coincidental that the FDA was reviewing this package and that they um, empathetically, you know, of course based on the science, released their decision at the end of this week that was very symbolic and it was a great uplift for the patients and a victory for the patient advocacy groups that, that had worked hard to achieve so many different um, avenues, to, to take so many different avenues to see the, the light in the tunnel such as the approval of a drug for the disease, eosinophilic esophagitis.
0: I I love that. That's incredible timing. I think one thing as we kind of start to wrap up here that surprised, maybe not surprised me, but it impresses me so much as I got into healthcare. Obviously, I'm not on the medical side, but in the communication side is whenever there's some kind of new medication, new therapy, how rigorous the process is to, you know, when you're, taking a pill, for example, everything that went through to make sure that that was going to be safe, that that was actually going to do something from the re- the conception, the research, the trials to speaking with your doctor as an individual to see if that would be you know, right for you. It's it is not a simplistic process. Um, and and I, I think that's so fascinating and encouraging that it takes so many people who are experts in these fields to come together to be able to do this over such an expansive amount of time. So my, my final question for you here, and I, I asked this because I, I was, um, uh, so impressed with your answer before, of there's still work to do, what's next for you in your research?
1: Well, it's next for us in our research is ultimately to develop, um, nude therapies, and to develop the cure for the disease. To plow away in our laboratory work, to continue to work and take a multifaceted approach which has to do with continuing with the basic science that I talked about. Also understanding that science is there to help people through uncovering new knowledge we can advance understanding of disease and that we're not satisfied at Cincinnati Children who just understand disease, but it's to apply that, which is translational and clinical research to the betterment of patients, in this case, these diseases. We're here to continue to improve the patient's lives and the families' well-being, and this is something that we're very committed to, we still work around the clock, my team and I, to uh, solve this disease and improve the lives through new developments, and to see how this particular drug, that's the first of its kind, to be approved for this disease, will transform hopefully the patient's lives but how we can continue to do better and to listen to the patients as they understand the advantages and disadvantages of this drug so that we're moving in the right direction. I just wanted to just close also, Bo, if you don't mind, by saying when someone drives up to the hospital and they see you know, the building and they look for the room to see the doctor and they may go to the outpatient clinic and they may have something as simple as a tonsillitis you know, which is a strep infection or something like that in the throat, they should know that Cincinnati Children's is um, thousands of people working, taking all different approaches to understand everything about their patients, about their children, and research is fundamental to our mission and that we are working in conjunction with many experts within the hospital and around the world to better understand pediatric diseases and health. And this is something that we're very proud of to to be part of the oldest pediatric research institution in the United States, and one that still is and will continue to be a leader in pediatric health. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to you and your audience today, Bo.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for being with us, and thank you for the work that you and your colleagues are doing. We look forward to hearing much more from you and would love to have you back on soon to talk about the next big advancement. All right, Dr. Rothenberg, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening. This episode was recorded on July 29th, 2022. The content of the Young and Healthy podcast is for informational and educational purposes. Our theme music was created by Steven Greco. This episode was produced by Symphony Fair Harris.
1: Thanks for listening. Follow Cincinnati Children's
0: on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.